Hi, this is Herb Kressel, and welcome to the October Radiology Podcast. This month, we'll be speaking with the authors of three interesting and informative uh, articles appearing in radiology. Uh, first, I'll have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Professor Alexander Margulis of the Weill Cornell Medical College, formerly Chief of Radiology at, at the University of California at San Francisco, about his editorial on the challenges of maintaining professionalism in an era of electronic communication. Next, uh, Dr. Deborah Levine, our Senior Deputy Editor, will be speaking with uh, Professor Ed Hendrick of the uh, University of Colorado discussing the issue of radiation doses and cancer risks derived from breast imaging studies. Uh, this uh, is quite topical and a source of a good deal of controversy uh, nationwide. Finally, Dr. Albert DeRusse, our deputy editor for cardiovascular radiology, will be speaking with uh, Patrick M. Coletti of the Department of Radiology at the University of uh, Southern California uh, on uh, a very, very uh, interesting paper uh, looking at the issue of uh, the effectiveness of coronary calcium score predicting alterations in future cardiac function. Uh, this is a uh, interesting look at a prospective group of patients who were followed for some time. We hope as you, that you will enjoy the podcast and uh, we all thank you for the support that the podcasts have been receiving. We've recently learned that podcasts currently are being downloaded at the rate of 6,000 per month and uh, we're quite pleased with the support and your response to these podcasts. Thank you. Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology, and welcome to the uh, October Radiology podcast. Today I'm delighted uh, to have the opportunity to chat uh, with Alexander R. Margulis, who is currently clinical professor of radiology and a member of the abdominal imaging section at Weill Cornell Medical Center. I have a, uh, a brief personal disclosure to make. Uh, prior to moving to New York, of course, uh, Dr. Margulis was uh, chief of radiology at UCSF and was actually my chief of radiology during training and has been my, my mentor uh, since that time. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much, Herb. Uh, I'm delighted to be on the air. Great. Uh, we're going to be discussing an editorial by Dr. Margulis entitled Radiology Constantly Changing Itself, Maintaining Professionalism in an Era of Electronic Communication. And in the editorial, uh, Dr. Margulis uh, notes that as we've adopted more and more of these electronic vehicles for interpretation and communication, radiologists have begun to distance themselves more from patients and referring physicians. And it's a challenge to maintain uh, professionalism as we become increasingly isolated. He goes on to suggest that the, the way to deal with this is to reach out more directly to patients, in particular meeting and greeting patients at the time of their exam and developing 
a method of reporting results to patients directly. Dr. Margulis, what, what brought you to want to write this editorial? Is there a particular problem that you think that you would want to deal with? Or is this something you've just noted in, in our professional community? I have noted that uh, radiologists are less and less visible to patients. Uh, they sit and read uh, the images, uh, they interpret them, and they send them to the physicians, who often then reinterpret the same images to the patients because uh, with PACs uh, they can see them. It is important to find out how we can see that the patients know that the radiologist is a physician directly involved in their care. I see. Now, one of the uh uh, suggestions that you have is interacting with the patient directly at the time of the examination. And it wasn't clear to me, should it be the radiologist who will be interpreting it or any radiologist or some radiologist on the staff who identifies themselves and assumes some responsibility for the relationship? What's your thought on this? It depends on the size of the department. If the department is divided into sections, it's important to have an officer of the day in every section uh, that will be sure that the examinations go according to a protocol that is individualized, introduce themselves to the patient either at the beginning or preferably at the end of the examination, and be sure that all the examinations in that section are really directed by the physician, by the radiologist, and visible, that the radiologist is visible to the patients. Yes, I, I think a number of people have been concerned that uh, if we just conceptualize ourselves as image interpreters and not the ones really tailoring and directing the study to patients, the quality of the work may suffer, and very importantly, uh, our professionalism may diminish. You also make a really uh, important uh, suggestion about having reports available directly to patients, and, and a number of others have suggested this. In fact, uh, I remember uh, perhaps last year, uh, Ferris Hall wrote a, a Perspectives article uh, calling for this as well. And uh, a few questions on this. Uh, uh, one of the things that Ferris mentioned was he suggested that the report that would go to the patient would be written in language that is directly understandable by the patient rather than using a lot of technical jargon. Was this what you had in mind? Do you think that patients are now sophisticated enough that we can send the same report to patients as we do to their referring physicians? Probably <laughs> should be a mixture. The same report with a little explanation that only goes to the patient. Okay. Now, the other thing when people consider this that comes up frequently is the issue of the timing of the report relative to the time that the referring physician uh, gets the report. Uh, there's always a concern that the referring physician will be blindsided if the patient knows the information in the report and has looked at it before he or she has. What's your thought on the timing of the distribution of these reports if they go directly to patients? Well, it's a local situation that uh, could change according to the locale. If the patient's anxious, uh, they should uh, learn even at the very end a preliminary report, 
like they do in mammography. Mm-hmm. However, otherwise, it's probably better that the physician gets it maybe an hour or two hours ahead. The problem is that many physicians are so busy that they don't see the report for a day or two. That's the problem because you bet that as soon as it's in their inbox, the patients are going to look at it, but the physician has to integrate it in the workflow of potentially hundreds of patients, and they may not, even if it's sent to them early, it's very hard for us to understand when precisely they'll have looked at the information. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, when you talk to people about implementing this, there's the sort of the issue uh, of productivity. Uh, radiologists are all very, very aware of uh, enhancing their productivity and efficiency. And it seems like uh, adding something like this uh, may tend to slow us down and there's no obvious source of revenue to cover that. Any thoughts that you have on the effect on productivity? it will probably decrease the productivity in smaller practices. It will not affect it in teaching centers and large hospitals. However, since this is such a critical issue, and I strongly believe that the, that the very survival of radiology depends on patients knowing that radiologists participate in the care, other issues are really besides the point. It is important for survival of the specialty. One other question about these uh, direct contacts is very commonly now, multiple locations are covered by a radiologist in a separate area. So at our institution, uh, someone uh, working at the hospital may be reading from two or three different uh, units if it's a CT or MRI that may be located 10 or 12 miles away. How do you think we should deal with uh, establishing a professional connection in that sort of a circumstance? Is there a physician, a radiologist, even on those locations? Yes, there is. There is no reason that he cannot or, he or she cannot introduce themselves. As a team and, member. Uh, yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then uh, finally, thinking about the whole context of uh, radiology professionalism, do you think that there needs to be an alteration in the way we think about ordering examinations? Uh, Is it efficient? Is it meaningful? Are we getting the right exams to the right patient? Should we change to sort of, again, address uh, the need for enhanced professionalism? Uh, The way radiology examinations are ordered today are totally, totally disgrace. Very often, house officers that do not understand what the examination entails are ordering it. Very often, multiple examinations are ordered when only one is needed. And what, again, what I believe that the officer of the day in large centers or... (coughs) Uh, somebody in smaller centers should be the one that would be asked by the clinician what examination would be the most efficient in this particular instance. This would save a great deal of money and often uh, avoid repeat examinations on the same day that some of them don't even are needed. 
Uh, interesting. And do you think, again, this is a, a matter of survival? Do you think it will enhance our efficiency in the long run? Well, it, it will increase our efficiency, but since the whole country has a tremendous problem uh, with the uh, high cost of uh, medicine, of healthcare, it would significantly decrease the amount of imaging that is ordered, some of which is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Professor Margulis, this is a very thoughtfully conceived editorial, and I was delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you on these issues. Uh, I'm sure that our uh, listeners will uh, uh, reflect on your comments a great deal, and thank you so much for participating uh, in the October podcast. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Pleasure. Hi, this is Debbie Levine. I'm Senior Deputy Editor of Radiology, and I'm here with Dr. Edward Hendrick, who's Clinical Professor of Radiology at the University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine. Dr. Hendrick has a special report being published in the October issue of Radiology that's entitled Radiation Doses and Cancer Risks from Breast Imaging Studies. So welcome, Dr. Hendrick. Thank you. Can you briefly describe the findings of your special report? Yes. In a nutshell, the report looks at the doses and risks from newer breast imaging modalities such as breast-specific gamma imaging, BSGI, and positron emission mammography, PEM, and compares those to the doses of more conventional breast imaging studies that use ionizing radiation like mammography. And what the report says is that the doses and risks from BSGI and TEM are 20 to 40 times higher than those from uh, a single two-view bilateral mammography exam. So the basic conclusion is that in terms of risk, a woman can get a lifetime of screening mammography starting at age 40 at about the same risk as a single BSGI or PEM study. So what made you decide to look into this and to write this report? The main motivating factor was I would go to meetings and uh, listen to people doing these clinical evaluations of, in particular, BSGI, but also PEM. And I would ask them what the radiation doses were from these studies and they would be able to tell me what the administered radionuclide dose was, but not the effective dose to the patient from the studies. So, uh, and then I would go to even larger meetings and there were quite discrepant results given for what the doses might be uh, from these studies. Some people would cite the breast dose when the breast dose is one of the least contributions to total effective dose from these uh, radionuclide studies. So it motivated me that probably if the people doing the research and most of the people in the audiences had this degree of uncertainty about the, the effective doses of, of these studies, that it was time to 
look into it and make it available to radiologists and others who are recommending these tests. So I, I think the, the issue that you kind of alluded to there is that when we give the radionuclides, we're exposing the entire body, whereas with mammography, we're really just exposing the breast. Right. These are intravenous injections of radio tracers, radioisotopes, technetium 99M uh, is the radionuclide for BSGI and fluorine-18 FDG is the radionuclide for PET or PIM, and they, that's a positron emitter rather than a gamma ray, direct gamma ray emitter. But the end result is that gamma rays, fairly high energy gamma rays, irradiate all organs of the body because it is injected intravenously. So while mammography just exposes the breast, the nuclear medicine procedures, BSGI and PEM, expose all organs of the body. And so it's misleading to just talk about the breast dose from, from these nuclear medicine procedures. So if a woman had one of these studies, either PEM or BSGI, and was concerned about her own cancer risk, what, what do you think we should be telling her? Well, there are several ways to communicate that risk to patients that I think are effective. One would be to compare the dose from this procedure to the dose from a CT exam, and they're quite comparable in terms of total effective dose. A BSGI PIM study is about the same uh, dose and risk as an abdominal or pelvic CT exam. Another way to communicate dose and risk is that uh, either BSGI or PIM have about the same radiation dose as two to three years of natural background radiation living in the United States. So one of the reasons we do these studies with PAM or BSGI is to hopefully have better specificity and sensitivity for breast lesions. Do you think maybe we should do more biopsies rather than do more advanced imaging? Yeah, actually most of them are not done for added sensitivity but more for added specificity because they're used as diagnostic adjuncts to mammography. So there has to be some degree of suspicion that the lesion is present when these are done. And another use for them is to look at extent of disease in a woman with a known cancer. So in that situation, doing more biopsies is probably not gonna be helpful. I think a better approach might be to use more available medical procedures, studies that have lower doses or no dose, like ultrasound and breast MRI. So it, it seems like we need to make a distinction between using these higher radiation modalities, BSGI and PEM, for diagnostic exams. Obviously, for screening, the dose would be rather high, a cumulative dose. Can you comment on that? Yes. These devices are approved only for diagnostic use and for workup of, of evaluation of extent of disease in women with a known breast cancer. So they are not appropriate for screening in part because they have 20 to 40 times the dose of a two-view mammography exam. And in addition, their benefits haven't been established for screening. 
as well as they have for diagnostics. So the point of my paper is not to say that these devices, BSGI and PEM, should not be used. The point is to say that these devices should be used prudently, that the woman should be in, uh, informed of, of the potential risks of their use and make a decision about whether they want to undergo that test. But in particular, referring physicians and radiologists should be aware that younger women have a significantly higher risk, uh, radiation risk from these devices than older women. So the devices need to be used prudently in their application, but particularly in their use uh, in testing younger women. So um, other modalities that you talk about a little bit less extensively in your special report are dedicated breast CT and breast tomosynthesis which also have a higher dose than regular mammography, albeit not as large as PEM and BSGI. How do you foresee these fitting into future screening or diagnostic paradigms? Well, whether they have higher dose than mammography, uh, and if it is, it would be slightly higher, or the same dose or maybe even slightly less than mammography remains to be seen for these because so far they've only been studied in a research mode. They, they're not available for clinical use in the U.S. at this point. And so we don't know what the final dose will be with these studies, and different manufacturers have different approaches to applying both digital tomosynthesis and dedicated breast CT. But eventually, I think these studies, digital breast tomosynthesis and possibly dedicated breast CT, although that remains to be seen, will be used for screening much in the same way as mammography is, and will be used in a, in a limited application in diagnostic, uh, as diagnostic adjunct to mammography. Okay, thank you. I'd like to turn now to mammography, uh, particularly for women with large, dense breasts that are difficult to compress. Um, you also have a nice graph in your report talking about breast thickness and looking at the dose because if you can only uh, compress to eight centimeters instead of two centimeters, obviously um, the dose is higher. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that and also whether we should be thinking more about screening women with dense breasts with a non-radiation inducing modality such as MRI rather than mammography. Well, I think for women over 40, there's no substitute for mammography, partly because it's, it's reasonably sensitive to, to cancers, uh, even in dense-breasted women, but also in dense-breasted women it can see calcifications, which are frequently a sign of, of ductal carcinoma in situ, but also um, in a reasonable fraction of invasive cancers the detection is done through seeing microcalcification. And while ultrasound is, is good for seeing masses, it's not so good for seeing calcifications. In fact, it doesn't do well at seeing calcifications. So you really need to do both in, in normal screening of women over 40, or at least do mammography in women over 40. For younger women who have even more radiosensitivity in their breast tissue and actually in all their uh, body organs, it makes sense to do screening if they're at high risk 
it makes sense to do screening with ultrasound and possibly breast MRI. Now, historically, the dose for mammography has come down. And how should that affect how we think about cumulative risk of cancer in our screening populations? Well, I think it's come down slightly. It's come down quite a bit from the 70s and 80s when Xerox, virography, and direct film exposure were used. But since then, it's stayed relatively stable with film screen. And with the advent of digital, the doses have come down somewhat from film screen doses. So it has come down with the sort of implementation of digital in the U.S. Currently, about 70% of digital system, of mammography systems in the U.S. are digital mammography systems. So the chances are good that a woman is going to get her exam with a lower dose digital system. I think that should reassure women somewhat in terms of the radiation risk from routine mammography. I think a woman shouldn't be dissuaded by risk considerations from getting annual screening mammography over the age of 40. Um, I think there's an additional uh, sort of in, inducement for getting digital mammography, which is it is more sensitive to cancers in dense-breasted women compared to film screen mammography. Great, thank you. And then this kind of leads into my last question. I think it is very difficult to convey to the general public data like what you present in your article. For example, the 1.3 to 1.7 per 100,000 lifetime risk for mammography at age 40. Mm -hmm. Some people might say, wow, that's pretty high, but you also give a number of a one in a million lifetime risk of inducing a fatal breast cancer at age 80, which sounds relatively small. How do you think radiologists can best convey this information to our patients and to our referring physicians? Well, in terms of dose and risk, the effective dose of a two-view bilateral mammography exam is equivalent to two to three months of natural background radiation. So it's a very small addition to what a woman is getting normally from the atmosphere and materials that are around them. So adding 20 to 30 percent of your natural background radiation a year is, is not a, a big dose or a big risk uh, based on current assessments of risk. Great. Thank you so much. Hi. Uh, we're delighted to have uh, uh, Dr. Patrick M. Coletti, a professor of radiology at the University of Southern California School of Medicine with us, uh, discussing a, uh, an interesting cardiac paper that he and his colleagues ha have published uh, in the October uh, radiology. And to uh, interview uh, Dr. Coletti, we're uh, joined by Professor Albert DeRusse, uh, our Deputy Editor for Cardiovascular Imaging. Uh, welcome, Dr. DeRusse. Thank you. So, welcome, Dr. Coletti. Well, thank uh, you. I'd like to read the title of your manuscript to start with. The manuscript is entitled, Does Coronary Calcium Score Predict Future Cardiac Function? association of subclinical atherosclerosis with left ventricular systolic and diastolic dysfunction at MR imaging 
in an elderly cohort. So we were very much interested in this study, but first, can you give a short summary of the main purpose and main findings before we get into more detail? Yes, we hypothesized that the subclinical atherosclerosis, as demonstrated by coronary artery calcification, would uh, correlate with future left ventricular reduction in function and visible regional wall motion abnormalities as markers of prior myocardial damage. And we uh, also hypothesized it would be diastolic dysfunction that we could measure with uh, reduced peak filling rate. We tested the hypothesis over an 11-year period of follow-up on the South Bay HeartWatch project cohort. The South Bay HeartWatch, uh, South Bay HeartWatch cohort started out with 1,461 participants that are elderly uh, with relative high risk, greater than 10% risk of, of a coronary event over the next eight years. And uh, these were uh, initially examined with coronary artery calcium scores and then followed up at uh, 11 years with cardiac MRI for left ventricular function, including systolic and diastolic function. Okay, thank you. So actually you used the calcium score to assess the subclinical presence of atherosclerosis. So there is a lot of uh, issue about using calcium scores for prognostic implications. And now you show also the implications for long-term left ventricular function. Can you please comment on the value of the calcium score, the strengths for prognostic implications? Calcium score gives you evidence for prior coronary uh, atherosclerosis. It doesn't tell you you have active disease, but it tells you you have disease. One could argue that the calcium score would show where you have active disease uh, as, as an accessory, but it does not show the, the disease directly. It just shows evidence that there is or has been disease there in the past, and that disease is, is solidified. And there probably would be an increased risk of having something happen to that vessel in the future but we, we're, not, we're not sure that that was the case. Okay, so the calcium score was used to assess these patients. And can you also speculate on the baseline characteristics of the patients who showed later on left ventricular dysfunction? Were they also abnormal at baseline or you cannot say that? The participants in this study had no history of, of coronary events at the time they were recruited. They were uh, at a mean age of uh, 64, degree, 64 uh, years when they were recruited, and uh, they voluntarily uh, participated in the study, on, and they were uh, selected because they had no coronary events. Their electrocardiograms were normal at baseline. We did not measure cardiac function at that time. We measured okay. cardiac function at 11.4 uh, years on a mean. Okay. Thank you. So it was also remarkable that only 26% of the uh, baseline patient cohort was included in the follow-up. Can you speculate on the implications of the limited follow-up and the uh, implications for the study results? There was considerable dropout in the cohort due to a, a number of factors, the most common one being coronary events or, or death. And so we had a much greater dropout than one might have predicted, but we, if you start with a group of elderly participants with a higher risk for coronary artery disease, one might expect that there will be some dropout. And over the course of 11 years, 
this, uh, this manifested. Okay. And uh, another question is, your main finding is that these calcium scores predict the presence of wall motion abnormality. Can you speculate what these wall motion abnormalities may reflect? Is it ischemia, old infarction? What will be the cause for these wall motion abnormalities? There were, there were two possibilities. One possibility is that there would be global dysfunction because of small vessel involvement with, with atherosclerosis. But it, it, it certainly is more likely that coronary artery disease is going to be a segmental condition. And it's not surprising that you would have regional wall motion abnormality rather than global uh, abnormalities with coronary artery disease. And the assumption then would be that the coronary artery calcium score is related to coronary artery disease and the coronary artery disease would be a segmental process. You also discussed that you had a number of unsuspected myocardial infarcts in your patient's uh, cohort, uh, as demonstrated by changes in the electrocardiogram. Can you discuss a little bit the significance of these unsuspected myocardial infarcts? Unsuspected myocardial infarcts are reasonably well known, and uh, uh, it probably is not surprising that we would have a, a large number uh, and, and we did, but we were able to show that those participants that had the uh, uh, higher calcium scores had a higher incidence of regional wall motion abnormalities, and they had a higher incidence of presumably of, of myocardial infarction. Uh, that at least that is, that's our interpretation. When you take the results of your study, does it have any uh, practical implications for patient management and lifestyle intervention, for example? Could you speculate on that? Well, one thing we certainly learned when we, when we corrected our data for lifestyle intervention, particularly treatment of uh, hyperlipidemia, it's clear that those participants that started with high calcium scores but were, were placed on long-term lipid-lowering treatment with statins had a much less likelihood of having coronary events and were much more likely to participate in the study, and they were more likely not to have regional wall motion abnormalities. So it, it is showing how things, how, how ideas have changed in, in cardiovascular medicine over the past uh, 11 years. Uh, when uh, 11 years ago, statins were becoming popular, but they had not, they've not reached the level that they've reached now. And the coronary calcium score was, was more popular because it was the, probably the best available method we had at the time for evaluating the uh, heart for coronary artery disease uh, risk. So. We uh, thought initially that it would that the calcium score would hold and that we wouldn't really have this problem with statins affecting our outcomes. But in fact, these participants were treated as as anyone else would be if they had elevated lipids, and uh, and that that certainly interfered with the with the result. Had these participants not been not been treated with statins, then the uh, effective calcium score probably would have been much greater. Thank you. As a final question, what do you think is the main message of your paper? The, the main message of the paper is that coronary uh, calcium does, does correlate with regional wall motion abnormalities in the future and that uh, uh, the calcium uh, in the coronary arteries correlates with future segmental disease rather than uh, future diffuse disease. Okay, thank you.